You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this this uh, session here we're going to have today on the United States Institute of Peace training uh, of peacekeepers, as well as with our guest, the United Nations Institute for Training and Research, uh, and their work on, on peacekeeper training. We're going to have a great conversation today about the evolution of peacekeeper training, both how it's evolved over time since the introduction of peacekeeping and where it should go into the future to face the new challenges we have today and, and the, the needs and the lessons learned we've learned uh, through over the decades of peacekeeper training. Before we welcome our, our distinguished participants in this conversation, I just want to introduce a little bit about how peacekeeper training is so important to USIP, the United States Institute of Peace's mandate and mission. We have a mission here to, to or mandate from Congress to prevent mitigate and resolve violent conflict and peacekeeping training peacekeeper training uh is a is a crucial part of that work we have been working since 2008 uh, on conflict management training for peacekeepers and we've worked to train both un peacekeepers and other peacekeeping uh peacekeepers headed off to the peacekeeping missions and it's a it's an essential part of how we work to not only help uh communities i mean help peacekeepers when they're deployed, uh, both military and civilian peacekeepers, to work in engaging with communities um, and help the civilian, I mean, the, the side of peacekeeper training that's, that, that brings communities together and both links peacekeepers and communities. It's an important part of how we help the management of conflict, both, both during active conflicts and uh, in a post-conflict situation. Um, but it, it strikes me, my, my own experience in the UN, I never really worked too far, too long uh, in peacekeeping, but I had a brief, brief uh, stint in Somalia embedded with the African Union uh, in their civil affairs department and worked worked at the Amazon mission there with uh, with some of the different troop contrib contributing countries. And what, what really struck me is that there I won't name any countries in particular, but there was a range in the training that was quite obvious. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I know that the, the UN has its standard uh, training um, uh, modules and the standard training curriculum that it, that it requires pre-deployment, but there's often other training that can be helpful. And, and I think it's important that peacekeepers when deployed, have all the tools that they need to both, you know, fulfill their mandate, but also ensure that they themselves are behaving in a way that, that is responsible and responsive to the, the needs of the, the communities that they work in. So I hope we can talk more about that today. The, the other little anecdote I will, uh, will talk about from my own experience, and it's not, you're not going to hear from me, you'll hear from our participants. But um, when I first began, uh, in 2010 in the, in the UN uh, legal department, one of the issues I was working on in New York was the, um, was the cholera outbreak in Haiti, uh, which was, which was um, 
allegedly, or I think later proven to be to, to be uh, attributed to the Nepalese contingent there. And it was, you know, there was there were issues of whether or not who was responsible, was there any negligence, where was the liability? Um, but it, regardless of, of fault and where that landed and how uh, communities were compensated, it was part of a long legacy of 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 sort of unfortunate and 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 negative experiences the Haitian community had uh, with with their the various peacekeepers that were deployed there to the stabilization mission. And we had a meeting just recently, yesterday, actually, with uh, some UN personnel, high-level UN personnel working on Haiti. And and now the situation is is very dire and desperate. And there's a need for for some sort of force to to do an intervention. And and we can't find a resolution. They're trying to find uh, a non-UN solution. Um, maybe they're going to go back and try to find some UN solution that's that's. Um, acceptable to to the Haitian people. But what we all know what is needed is some sort of hopeful support to to Haiti and the Haitian people to help stop the the violence of the gangs uh, in Port-au-Prince, but also elsewhere. And so it just speaks to this conversation, I think, the need to evolve, to learn, to have good training and good implementation of peacekeeping. And and I really look forward to, to that conversation. Um, uh, before the last last thing I'll, I'll introduce, uh, I'll say before we introduce our, our, our guests is here at USIP, we also like to, when looking forward, look back to some of the, the positive lessons learned and, and when possible, the American contributions to that. And so I was reading this morning in preparation today about Ralph Bunch. And I think Ralph Bunch is uh, an American hero, Nobel laureate that that is too often overlooked. He's an African-American who was a professor at Howard and was largely accredited to being one of the fathers of peacekeeping. He helped create the first peacekeeping or peacekeeping force that went in 1948 to the, the UN truce supervision or, um, uh, or organization, I think UNSO, which is still there today in, in Jerusalem after the Arab Israeli war. And then he was a major, major architect of the, uh, of the UNEF in the, after the Suez crisis. And he's, he's a champion, a real American hero. And, um, he's, he's often overlooked, I think too, too, too much, uh, here in the United States. So he's, he's somebody we can remember as, as a real, uh, American, um, uh, person to 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 admire and maybe uh, uh draw on for the future when we look to how we what we deal with new problems so that's that's my piece for for today but i also want to introduce uh, our wonderful colleagues who will talk to us really from their rich rich experience on uh peacekeeping training peacekeeper training so first off we have uh and I'm always bad at reading the, these announcements, so just bear with me. We have William Shatawi, and she is a senior program officer that leads USIP's Conflict Management Training for Peacekeepers program. Prior to focusing on peacekeeper training, William focused on the intersection between education and training management and security sector reform. Before joining USIP, William assisted on and contributed to policy analysis and research project projects led by the Oxford Criminology Center, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the United Nations Security Sector Reform Unit, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, covering socioeconomic and SSR issues in North Africa and other regions. 
William holds a master's in public policy from Oxford University, where she explored the notions and practices of democratic policing. William has served, has had a rich background and, and has taught and trained for a long time. She's a true expert in her field, and we're so happy to have her in this conversation. Ms. Claudia Croce heads the pre-deployment training and advisory team within the Division for Peace at the United Nations Institute for Training and Research. She's assisting member states, international and regional organizations, and other relevant stakeholders as they contribute to lasting peace and security. She has over 15 years of experience in capacity building, supporting individuals, organizations, institutions, and societies from a systemic perspective. She has been working with numerous troop contributing countries for deployment to major UN peace operations, too many to name, and with many different uh, acronyms. So we will work on the acronyms as we go. We'll introduce them once like we're writing, but it includes MINUSMA, MINUSCA, MONUSCO, UNMIS, and many, many, many others, including Amazon I see here. Um, prior to joining UNITAR, Ms. Croce worked uh, for the UN OCHA, the Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, the African Union, the OSCE, and NATO. Claudia holds a PhD in human rights, politics, and sustainability with a specialization on human rights and international humanitarian law. Welcome to uh, USIP, Claudia. And finally, Yaro Hamadou, he's one of USIP's uh, peacekeeper trainers. Uh, Mr. Hamadou is a retired gendarme from Burkina Faso. He's a former peacekeeper and a current peacekeeper trainer, trained by and now delivering training with the USIP in their conflict management training for peacekeepers program, CMTP, we call it. Yaro has served in Burkina Faso's national gendarmerie in various positions and, and has had responsibilities such as training peacekeepers. He's worked with battalions, foreign police units, and U.S. police advisors from Burkina Faso. He's, he's been deployed to various U.N. and AU missions for as a peacekeeper. Yaro served as a U.N. police officer and a peacekeeper in the field, as well as a best practices officer in charge of knowledge management, best practices, and lessons learned in the office of the Police Commissioner within the United Nations African Mission in Darfur, Sudan. Yaro is now completing his master's degree in conflict, peace, and security and conflictology with UNITAR. So welcome all of you to, to, to this wonderful discussion. I think that uh, we should start off <clears throat> because uh, William knows much, much more than I do about our, our own peacekeeping training. And so uh, I, will, I will start with you uh, to give just a brief overview before we start about the U USIP's peacekeeper training and its history. And just before you get into the evolution and the details, could you just give us a little run through about our program? Thank you, Andrew. Um, USIP's uh, training has uh, gone through a wonderful period of growth and evolution uh, over the years that is reflective, I think, of uh, what uh, pedagogical expertise has joined the team and has allowed this kind of content to grow, but also has been, has kept up to date and abreast of uh, evolutions in peacekeeper, peacekeeping, uh, mission realities, as well as how the UN and other institutions have reflectively looked at uh, what is going on uh, with peacekeeping mission effectiveness, uh, how communities react to peacekeeping in general. Um, I would start by saying that this program has been live and uh, living at USIP since 2008. Um, it has uh, considerably changed from being 
uh, a, a a response to a need expressed uh, uh, to um, uh, the U.S. government uh, in its support to uh, peacekeepers uh, through the ECOTA program at the time, uh, a need that was expressed uh, that basically peacekeepers need tools to manage violent violence in non-violent way and to manage conflict in non-violent ways. And uh, as the team uh, grew and as uh, uh, USIP uh, uh, basically met more and more peacekeepers over time, um, this training has uh, grown uh, to become a much more um, direct and experiential uh, training that is rooted in adult learning theory. And this is important for several reasons that I'll get into in a bit. And that really defines our approach. Um, to begin with, as uh, 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 we met with peacekeepers and as the training was delivered, it has been very much an organic process of growth. It's not based singularly on um or uh, training materials that need to be followed. It very much takes its root from there, from the UN core uh, training materials for peacekeepers, but it also is a reflection of uh, the realities and the difficulties that peacekeepers and the communities that they are you know, serving and protecting uh, express. For example, when the protection of civilians mandate, uh, uh, you know, gained ground, it is, incredibly important and yet so many peacekeepers enter the training uh, uh the pre-deployment training and leave it without a clear understanding of what it entails and what it implies so what usip's approach is to training is to turn that into a very real lived experience during the training before deployment and that is through the development of extensive scenarios of very uh, deeply uh, uh, well thought out interactions uh, of immersive uh, learning experiences and by building on the knowledge that a lot of these people bring into the classroom. It's based on the understanding that without digging deep into their own experiences of conflict, and this takes many forms in personal, professional and conflict, you know, war contexts, uh, uh, you cannot basically make the learning stick in a sense. And so when USIP carried out uh, an assessment uh, that started in 2014, and then a report came out in 2017, which I encourage people to read, it was uh, a very important assessment that basically um, went to people and asked them what is missing? Where are the gaps in peacekeeper training when it comes especially to a nonviolent conflict management? Uh, we found that there was a huge issue uh, in terms of uh, how peacekeepers manage conflict, not only with the communities that generally uh, face peacekeeping missions with some level of mistrust, especially now with this information being one of the biggest uh, concerns that the UN is seeing in terms of how peacekeeping missions are regarded, uh, but also uh, uh, in, in the very structures of the peacekeeping troops, for example, their own internal structures, there have been issues with conflict management is what we came to see. And so our training is meant to improve mission effectiveness, not just in terms of the relationship between the peacekeeper and the community members who have many grievances and issues that are legitimate and uh, when dealing with peacekeepers, but also internally 
in the peacekeeping mission itself, how to manage conflict between troops, between uh, the higher in the hierarchy of that uh, of that very that that entity that operates under such levels of stress uh and 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 hostility in some cases so that's the that's the reality that we tried to handle is how do you manage that conflict and how do we make our training realistic how do we make how do we make sure that we are not approaching it in a didactic manner how do we make sure that when they come into the room they are preparing for a real scenario and not just you know uh memorizing um resolution texts memorizing you know what is stipulated in a mandate in a theoretical manner so that was the biggest part of how we defined our approach uh the second part of it is um the people that developed this program for USIP, and I, I can I can list a number of people, particularly amongst them are Alison Milovsky, Lana Lancaster, um, a number of different people who've worked on it over time. Um, they made sure that they were bringing in experts from different fields. So it's very much rooted in specialization. So if we are to talk about uh, gender uh, and you know, combating and preventing sexual exploitation and abuse, then that needs to be designed and developed with the right people. If we're talking about what mediation looks like, there are consultations with the right people who have that expertise. USIP's team that delivers the conflict management training for peacekeepers is actually a team uh, that is based in the curriculum and training design team within USIP. And so these are expert curriculum designers um, and, and educational specialists. Uh, but the, the content is drawn from conversations with UNITAR, conversations with specialists from the UN, conversations with experts in their own right in dealing with these concepts uh, in conflict contexts. Finally, uh, the conversations, uh, perhaps the most important ones, are with peacekeepers themselves. Every year, USIP visits multiple learning, lessons learned workshops that are actually encouraged and uh, coordinated between the, uh, um, sorry, the uh, global uh, peacekeeping um operations initiative within the U.S. government and these uh, uh, peace and, and troop contributing countries where they have their former battalions return, discuss lessons learned, discuss what has happened, and then define changes to curricula and changes to the pre-deployment training itself. And so uh, the most important contributions have come from peacekeepers themselves who have said this really was necessary or that really didn't help me as much as I thought it would or the way that I was trained on this didn't make sense in the, in the actual context. Um, and then there were conversations in our assessment um, and you can find a lot of this information in the 2017 report that talks about that, that, that were coming from the communities themselves, from community members in peacekeeping contexts who, who felt uh, that certain things, uh, that certain skills were missing in peacekeepers. So it's been a learning process. It's been very much built on community engagement, on understanding what values peacekeepers need to have, what mindset shifts are required, keeping in mind that a 12-week pre-deployment training is you know, it's it's difficult to create that mindset shift from being a soldier in your own country to being a peacekeeper in a different context uh, uh, and the difference in values that that requires. So um, I hope that answers the questions. I would just uh, finally 
touched on the the key uh, concepts or pillars of our training. And those are very much about making sure that the mission mandate is understood by the peacekeepers, that protection of civilians as a mandate is definitely understood. And maybe Yaro can share a little bit about what he faces when talking about protection of civilians with different peacekeepers. Um, and then understanding power and what power dynamics exist when someone is a peacekeeper in a position of relative power compared to the community they're in, understanding how that power uh, operates and, and how they can use it for good and not for, you know, uh, exploitation um, or, or, you know, any kind of dynamic that is, ends up harming the peacekeeping mission in the community, of course. Um, understanding uh, why communication is important, uh, uh, different tools of conflict analysis are provided to the peacekeepers. Uh, and then um, there is, uh, of course, a huge focus on sexual exploitation and abuse embedded into that broader conversation about power and gender and socialization. Um, I will stop there, and I hope that um, perhaps uh, the other extremely experienced colleagues can share more, and I also look forward to questions. Thank you so much, William. Um, and Claudia, I'm, before I turn to you, let me apologize deeply, because this, this is a co-hosted event with UNITAR, the United Nations Institute for Training and Research, as I understand. So I should have uh, explained that and given you the floor to open. Open as a co-host and as a participant in, in, in your own right, but I I think I have credit with Unitar. I was a champion of Unitar in the UN for many many years, so I continue to sing the praises of Unitar. So please tell us about Unitar and how peacekeeping training connects to your broader mission as, as an organization or an institution within the UN. Over to you, Claudia. Thank you, Andrew. And really, no worries. Protocol is not my strength. So, I mean, I didn't even notice it. So, thank you for having us in, in this panel discussion. And thank you, William, for introducing the program, um, which, I mean, I will go into that in a second. Uh, I see so many similarities between what you are doing and what we are doing. But in general, I think it's reassuring as well, because it's very much the direction that the United Nations in general and the institutions that are supporting troop and other contributing countries are taking. So that's, in a way, is reassuring. Um, but I will go into like a bit the evolution and how what we do a little bit more. Before that, I think any opportunity to share a little bit more about UNITAR, which is now probably the most known agency of the United Nations. Uh, but we do quite some work together with other UN agencies that is probably worth mentioning. So we do exist uh, since 1965, actually, see, even before the UN, United Nations Development Program. And we have been created at that time very much to support new member states that were gaining independence after the decolonization program and really creating local capacities for them to enter into the international scene, not only at the level of the United Nations, but also of regional organizations, but even just to reconstruct their, their institutions at the national level. So it has been a long, long path through the years. And of course, from 1965 to today, the world has evolved in millions of different ways. So our mandate has also evolved. What has remained very much at the core of our work is this idea of being a direct support for member states. So this doesn't mean we do not work with 
uh, other UN agencies, partner organizations, but the core really of the work is supporting member states. And that's where the involvement with the peacekeeping training is really relevant, and this is where it came in. So as the member states were evolving and their contribution to the international peace and security system evolved as well, there was these realizations that many of these emerging countries were going to be very much involved in peacekeeping processes. And from there, like from their experience working with our agency in other domains, that's from where the idea of creating a dedicated peacekeeping training uh, program came about. So it was a long process and it has evolved along with the evolution of peacekeeping, I would say. So you mentioned the first missions uh, back in the days, and we know like how much has changed. But this idea of really supporting the member states prior to their deployment, that's very much at the core of everything we do. And this comes with training, but also comes with other type of interventions that has evolved again, along with the evolution of peacekeeping. So initially, like our peacekeeping training program was very much like focused on what were the, um, the traditional task of peacekeeping. So was I, I would not say that peacekeeping has ever been an easy endeavor because it's always about intervening into another country, of course, upon invitation. But through the years, and, and we have made reference to the evolution of Maldives, the inclusion of the protection of civilians, clearly like the tasks that have been, that peacekeepers have been asked to face and, and to the roles that they have been asked to take on has evolved significantly. And at the same time, our our training, our training approach has evolved uh, significantly along the way. So on the one hand, what we have seen is very much along with the increased complexity of mandates and expansion of our curriculum. So of course, as the United Nations, we are very much concerned about ensuring the harmonization and standardization of the curriculum according to US standards. So there is a core training package that is being used for really training, which goes hands in hands with specialized training packages depending on what component of the army. In our case, we train police and corrections as well. So depending on which components we train, we move into this specialized material as well. So there has been this evolution, but also like this expansion, sorry, of the curriculum, but also like there has been this strong interest throughout the expansion to look into where the expertise to ensure this expansion can come from. And so the partnership with relevant institutions where, where for us it was really, really essential to ensure um, us providing a product that can actually impact on the performance of the person once they are developed. Um, one thing that is important to mention about UNITA is that we are not mandated to set training standards. So we are not, of course, we do understand what we train our participants on, but we are not mandated to set the standards for the training. These for us come from the United Nations. And when the standards are not available, we do rely on international experts, the same way the process that you have been explaining. It's never something that is just being developed for the sake of developing something. And for us, what is really like the starting point, and that was the starting point when we started, we reconsidered like our peacekeeping training program was if we look at the task, 
that the peacekeepers are assigned once they are deployed. How do we translate those tasks into training, actually, so that the training is directly linked to the experiences that they will live once they are deployed? So for us very much in this, with the evolution of the peacekeeping mission, the concern was really like giving peacekeepers the practical tools to actually operate and to make a difference once deployed. It's not about theory, it's not about knowing the resolutions. Of course, you should understand on which basis you are deployed in a country. That's essential. It's Of course, it's important that you understand what is the framework, what is that you can do and you cannot do. But how does this translate into your day-to-day work? That was for us very much the focus of everything that we have been doing. And so, this idea of impacting on the performance has been, especially in the last year, with increased complexity, with everything that we hear coming from the field, this focus on performance has been the our, our guiding star, is really how can we support peacekeepers that are deployed in these situations to actually perform efficiently and effectively. Understanding that if you look at the rates of fatalities in the field as well, we are really, if we are not doing our job correctly, we are really in a position to potentially put at risk the lives of the people that are being deployed. And that's a message that we have been passing very, very strongly to our trainers, which is another component of the work that we have been doing. So on the one hand, expanding the curriculum, including really all the possible topics um, that would allow the, the personnel to perform once deployed. So creating this strong linkage between training and the reality. What we am saying, like I, I wrote it down, creating this lived experience prior to deployment. We sometimes even say there is no pre-deployment and deployment. You come to the training, that's when your deployment starts. So it's really like creating this linkage. But the other, we realize that for them to understand the field, to, for them to understand what they're going to face, we need to give them the opportunity to interact, to be trained by people that have the same experience, that have seen it, that have lived it, that know what it means. And so that has been very much the focus we have been giving into the selection of the training, the trainers. So making sure that the trainers have the field experience, they do have an understanding of the UN system, potentially of other um, organizations as well, that they can create this connection with the participants and that they have done what they are training on. So that has been really a mantra. You don't train unless you know to do it yourself, unless you know how to do it yourself. That has been very much a mantra for us and a crucial element. The third way our our uh, program has expanded over the years on the methodological approaches. So we have realized, and again, we have made reference to this, to create these lived experiences prior to the deployment, prior to reaching, hitting the field. You really need to use very alternative approaches to training to what we have seen before. We have been, we, we work with adults. We work with people that have been trained in security and defense forces, where training is very often conceived in a very direct and instructor-led fashion, which is not always 
the best solution. Of course, in some cases, you need to have that approach, but in some other cases, you really need to try to have a stronger mix of experiences. So we have been really like through a dedicated team that we have in, in Unidar, which is for learning solutions, really like devising these solutions for training to make sure that when people come to the training, it's not just about sitting in a classroom and listening to someone or looking at the PowerPoint with all respect for that, but it's really like being engaged. So to the point that then the knowledge and the skills that we are transferring are retained for this. So a lot of work has been done in this um, in this direction. And the last uh, the last dimension that we have very much explored in this evolution is realizing that we talk a lot about training, but training is a component of capacity building. And when you look at capacity building, capacity building contains a lot of things. If you want, and that's what we want, change the behavior, so impacting on this performance, we have to look at many different dimensions. Uh, starting from, does the personnel have the appropriate equipment? Is the personnel training for their infrastructures? Is the institution, has the institution had the proper procedures and um, operating standards for the personnel to be deployed? So on the basis of this acknowledgement, the really capacity building is something broader that can encompass different dimensions. We have really like, besides training, taking on different types of interventions. So from provision of equipment that can, that it's always in line with the UN standards and, and the standards that are set at uh, the secretariat level, provision of equipment, support with infrastructure, but also a lot of what we have been doing lately is institutional support. is really like advising and working with institutions, security institutions, for them to be ready to deploy the appropriate and well-prepared personnel in the field. And what we have seen, I know it's not the topic of the session today, but uh, one of the elements that we have seen this particularly important into is when we want to include uh, gender equality and equal participation of men and women in these operations. Unless we really work with institutions, unless we look at infrastructure, unless we look at equipment, just the provision of training is not sufficient. You have really to take a much more comprehensive look into that. So probably this can be the topic for another <laughs> panel discussion, but that's to give you a sense a little bit of the different, of the evolution of the program. So really from something that was very traditional at the beginning to the recognition of uh, the increased complexity, the increased risk. I mean, the Cruise Report was a milestone, I think, for anyone that works in peacekeeping to acknowledge really, okay, it's no longer only about creating an impact or not. We are talking about the life of people. So how can we make sure they are prepared for that? And what isn't there for that preparation? So we have really like looking into all these different dimensions and trying to integrate them in, in a way or another with the different member states we support, understanding that probably the mandate of UNITAR allows us to have a broader and more comprehensive engagement with member states, which is what I was saying at the beginning, really the core of everything we do. So I think I will stop here, and but happy to answer 
again, any question that will come up later. Thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you so much for that sort of introduction and description of the evolution. What strikes me from, from your comments and from what William was saying is um, beyond and broadening the, the, the scope of just program planning uh, writ large and peace building, there's a lot of conversations that, that I've had recently about uh, what the U.S. Army War College deemed the, the VUCA world, which is, stands for a volatile, uncertain, uh, complex, and ambiguous world that we all find ourselves in. And, and, and meeting those challenges uh, seems to be ever more um, difficult, and we must adapt our training in, in all these, these contexts of, of peacekeeping and, and peace building more broadly, um, which, which is perfect to turn to Yara, who's really you know, uh, our, our, our practitioner and trainer uh, uh, here, and we're so happy to have you. I, I just want to ask you two questions, Yara, to start off. I mean, could you could you start off by telling us about the primary difficulties that you faced as a peacekeeper and seeing how you try to tackle those with future peacekeepers as you do your training? And then secondly, could you talk to me about the the sort of the perspectives and attitudes of, of your trainees versus yourself when you were yourself a trainee and, 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 and your colleagues when you were going into training? Have you seen differences over time in, in the, the training sort of environment and perspectives? So if you could just open with those two questions, uh, it would be great to hear from you, Yara. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, everyone, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, I'll start by answer, trying to answer the, the further question uh, as, uh, as, uh, as far as uh, the attitude of the, the treaty people is concerned. Uh, saying that uh, it's um, declaring to my experience, I've uh, got the opportunity to work with the people from my country, I and mean, from 2000. Coming to 2015, and then uh, with the uh, international peace training, uh, 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 with international training peacekeepers with USIP. So I'm confident and I'm very confident, but uh, I can personally say that uh, I, uh, I have observed some, some changes in training peacekeepers' attitude. And then specifically uh, the way, I mean, the way they, they, they think and they act during the, 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 the mission preparation, I mean, the deployment training and the uh, mission readiness. So you can uh, really observe some positive changes in the positive changes in their attitude because um, most of them, they, they make their way. They, they have a uh, lot of knowledge about the mission, about uh, the, the, the field of deployment, and um, the mandate, but compared to us, so when, I was, um, when I was going for the that mission, uh, actually I have less information about uh, uh, where, I, where I was going for the mission, uh, less information about the mandate, uh, and less information about the specific parts of the uh, of uh, of real food in that in that situation. So, so compared to now, when you are conducting an in training in the inside classroom, you can see you have a lot of experience, experience, uh, experience within the training. That most sometimes even they conduct the class 
and share experience among them. Do the lessons that do the do the lessons that you have to try to conduct with them. So having this information about the team, the mission area, and the mission is a is a is a positive thing, is a positive uh, asset. And I think all this is all this is because of the training, the deployment training. I mean, provided by many providers like Yosanti, like Mirita, like Kofiana, and also national staff, because now you have now national staff uh, in the, 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 within the, um, the, uh, the two cultivation countries that are now becoming traders. So before even the, the, now the, the, the training, end up the, 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 the deployment training and get ready to be deployed, they are really ready. They are really ready to go, and this is and this is very good aspect. Very good aspect for the for the, for, the, for for them to succeed the mission because they they now they they, they hit the ground confident and knowing what they have to do. Uh, and it's also a positive a positive aspect for the for the mission as effectiveness because you have staff and. People that hit uh, uh, the ground and they are ready to go, so you don't spend much of time in the deployment training. You don't spend lots of time uh, teaching them before you deploy them on the ground. And this is a very good tip, a very good aspect of of uh, of training that is uh, that are very positive. Now related to the um, the difficulties of the challenges I personally face, I can list. There is just two challenges to continue, which is uh, having less information about the mission field, less information about the mandate, less information about the, uh, the task, the specific task uh, before before leaving my country and before hitting the, the mission ground. And the second one is actually distance from family. Yeah, it's distance from family because mission area is mission area. You leave your family and then you have maybe six to twelve months. So uh, it's, it's true that military usually separate with your family, but when you leave for the mission area, it's a very specific area. So that's good challenges. And usually I need to say, share the experience of how I overcome those two challenges with the, with the training. And the first one is actually really when you hit the ground. If you you are not you are not lucky to have enough the deployment training, go to the go to your, to your website, go and read read about your mission mandate, read exploit any opportunity and read to be ready, and also try to discuss with your colleagues. That's what exactly what I did and it worked. And for the family, uh, you have to stay as much as you touch with your family and. Sometimes, you know, uh, mission alone in the mission uh, from us in developing um, countries, soldiers need to consider it like um, a source of income and they don't want to spend it. <laughs> Even paying credit or in trouble when they have opportunity to go home. Uh, I think this is not a good advice. Anytime you have, you have an opportunity to, to travel and go back and see your family, anytime you can spend, uh, you can buy credit. And stay in touch with your family, do it as 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 as, 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 as because they are part of the mission actually. They are part of you. 
because they support you on the ground. So the, the morale is very good from the family. Yeah, and you always have them with you, you always succeed in your music. And it's good, also very good for the, I mean, as I, as I said, for the mission effective man. So I don't know, I'm available, that's what I have to share. If there's any question, any clarification, I'm ready for that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much uh, for that experience. Yeah, it, it does strike me that the conditions of service, uh, um, not like I said, I was only a short period, a few months in in, in Somalia, but I was years in in, in Libya and and uh, Iraq with the with the special political mission. So we didn't have peacekeepers, but we had the UN Guard Unit, and they are from true contributing countries, and and they 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 are guarding us, and and they they really had a hard. Um, hard conditions of service with the long deployments and long times away from their family. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the thought was that they're, they're military men and they, they should, you know, tough it out, but, but it was tough. And I, I know that, uh, keeping the morale up is really important. So yeah. I, I, I understand that. Um, and it's good to hear that, that, that over the time you've seen a positive trajectory for the trainees and that they've, they've been, uh, better, better pre-deployment training, better, better, uh, informed. That's really, really a positive, a positive trend. Uh, William, I, 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 yes, yes, sir. Uh, I just want to, it's very good example that you have given, and I'm also going to ask something about the pre-deployment training. Because just last month I was um, I was in Uganda conducting training for the uh, for the battalion ready to go to Somalia, and then in, oh. uh, in one of my uh, training assessment questions, what you, what I have actually what you learned, what you didn't know, and what you know now, one of the female training training teachers uh, told me that this is the first time actually. Uh, for her, or this is the first time for, for her to hear that the POC protection of civilians is actually beyond, beyond physical protection. Because for her, um, um, for a long time, if they are talking about protection of civilians, it's only physical protection of civilians. So you see, getting this information before you get to be, to be deployed is very good. It's very good. And it's, it's not. Taking my own example when I was, um, before I leave to my country to, to Darfur, I didn't know that. To, yeah. To, yeah. I didn't know that. I, yeah. I, I actually knew it when I was in the ground. When I was grown, I went through uh, emission training and I, I get now uh, more information about the POC mandate, which is, Claudia, uh, I mean, Claudia said, which is the mission, because it's all the mandate. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, it's the heart of the it's all mission mandate. So, yeah. Oh, very interesting. And, and the uh, mandates are very different. One mandate is very different from another, as we know, in, in the different, in the different yeah. Uh, yeah. missions. Yeah. And, 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 and William, I, I think that's a good point as I, I turn to you. I, there's these concepts. Protection of civilians is one. Um, they're they're embedded in international law. Some some of these things are in international humanitarian law. Some of them are a part of the Security Council mandates, and and they they, they at an abstract level, you know, 
to some they make a lot of sense, but to a peacekeeper who has to go out into the field and live uh, in the real world uh, circumstances to to abide by some of the principles or have to enact the mandate that's been written in an abstract way, uh, it must be really hard for trainers to 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 simulate and get people prepared. Um, you know, one of the 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 probably more sensitive subjects and especially with peacekeeping over time, uh, especially as we see, well, since the dawn of war, I think, unfortunately, is that uh, conflict-related sexual violence has been, you know, um, an atrocity of of war for a long time. It's hopefully increasingly more recognized as such, but never ceases to to occur more and more as we see in Sudan today and and, and around the world. Um, How do you deal with uh, uh, training and in, 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 in conflict-related sexual violence and those issues for peacekeepers when when doing these these trainings and 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 then more broadly the gender aspects as as Yara was mentioning a female peacekeeper so both in the the contingents are mixed and then also of course dealing with uh, communities and all of the gendered aspects of peacekeeping how is that uh, approached with your training William. Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, Primarily, I'll start by saying that one of the benefits of the way that we've been doing the training is by training smaller groups um, rather than kind of whole battalions. Uh, But that's also, uh, you know, up until now, um, it's been a resource issue. And now we have been growing in a a sustainability strategy of training more and more uh, civilian trainers. And we are on the path to training instructors from these military uh, troop contributing countries uh, to increase the number of uh, uh, training classrooms, training basically spaces so that we can maintain the small group, but train bigger and bigger portions of the the, uh, deployed battalion. The idea has been that we can't really talk about questions of sexual exploitation and abuse and questions of gender without first digging deep again into personal experiences and personal understanding and having an introspective conversation about how we view uh, uh, gender, how we view others in general uh, as as people first before being peacekeepers. And then once we've had that conversation and we have this through uh, uh, in-depth conversations about, you know, where is where is the violence rooted? You know, aside from the power dynamic, where is it rooted? Where is that socialization and understanding of gender in these harmful ways that end up creating victims and survivors, hopefully in many cases, uh, of assault? How how do they how do they form? You know, we talk about so- social uh, understanding of gender, about how these constructs are developed. We talk about poverty. We talk about exploitation. We talk about the profit motives. We talk about the general structures that together create this uh, this uh, these realities. And then once we've had those conversations, um, it becomes easier to explain the the why and and one's place in that in that dynamic in that equation um uh, either as a protector or as hopefully a thwarted aggressor because the reality is peacekeepers have themselves been involved in sexual exploitation and abuse in, in many contexts so 
it has been really interesting for us to observe peacekeepers say things like, okay, I had heard about zero tolerance policy in the UN. I had heard about the necessity to fight sexual exploitation abuse, but I didn't know, and this is you know a few weeks into their training, into the pre-deployment training, I didn't know that that involved not sleeping with prostitutes during a mission. I didn't know that this involved not uh, actively pursuing someone I found attractive from the community. I, that understanding of the power dynamic and the complexities of what UN zero, zero dollars policy dictates um, is difficult to achieve without literally you know, developing multiple scenarios that are very nuanced to help them understand even further what is and is not possible and you know what may cause unintended harm. And these are very complex conversations. This is why it is, you know, so important to have these forms of training that Claudia mentioned, where you do have that 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 space, that ability to transition from instructor-led to participant-centered uh, training contexts, because these are these are concepts that you know, make the difference between someone actually being a victim of sexual abuse and assault or trafficking or or other uh, and someone uh, uh, actually uh, uh, not experiencing this horrific reality. Um, so the, 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 the time and the dedication that we offer to, that we dedicate to these conversations uh, by rooting them in the personal, by rooting them in uh, very nuanced conversations about uh, uh, power and about gender and about the socioeconomic conditions that lead to individuals perceiving others as inferior or 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 as uh, targets uh, uh, are important and are uh, you know we we dedicate a lot of time to that and I think that's what makes the difference between someone you know just saying oh yeah UN zero tolerance or and then at, and someone who receives a four or five day training and says. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't know that it was that nuanced. I didn't know that 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 there were degrees to this. And I didn't know that it's because I have been conditioned to see things in a certain way, to see others in a certain way. And I didn't know that I had power because in many cases, and I've had the conversation with a peacekeeper about this in Malawi, I mean, they feel kind of as victims in, in many situations, right? The peacekeeper themselves feel that their conditions are not great, Um they are misunderstood by the community. Uh, there is a lot of disinformation, misinformation about what they're doing there. People hate them. People are attacking them. There's protesters at the door. There's, you know, so much that they forget that in, in the end of, at the end, when they look at things objectively, when they understand the power that they hold in that situation, that they still have the responsibility to recognize that in that power dynamic, they are the ones with the power. And so that's a lot of what the conversations end up revolving around, understanding their role as a peacekeeper. So um, that is how we approach this question. Uh, we try to really, really dig into the personal first. And the other thing that we, uh, as I mentioned earlier briefly, like around sustainability, uh, it is important for us to have former peacekeepers or just civilians from uh, uh, different countries that, is, that, that are contributing troops to be the main trainers. And that is the dynamic that we're in right now. The strategy is 
to ensure that these conversations are had uh, between, um, you know, people who uh, understand the same experiences, who when they talk about socialization can talk about it in ways that are rooted in the local and personal contexts. Um, and that is how the, the whole uh, curriculum is designed to be a tool in a long-term sustainability process for troop contributing countries to to really focus on on the essential concepts and skills that they need for effective peacekeeping. Thank you so much, William. Um, and Claudia, I, I have another question for you, as you know, but I, I would I would like to see if you have any comments. You raised some of these gendered aspects before, but on the sexual exploitation and abuse, you know, by peacekeepers, which unfortunately we know of, but also their work on trying to uh, protect uh, civilians from 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 conflict related sexual violence. If you have any comments, I know we don't have too much time, and we could dedicate you know a, many days to this topic. But any other comments you have to add, and then. I have one other question, but I'll just open with that. Any comments you have to mm -hmm. add and, and then follow up? Yeah, uh, thank you. Well, yes, um, um, I, I think that we have said it. You, we have to move away from the traditional, and that's probably a bit also like the challenge of the United Nations, because as, as I was saying, the United Nations has standard training packages, and these standard training packages are developed uh, through a process that involved all 193 member states. Everyone has to agree. So you get to a point where the content is quite diluted and where you address some of the topics very much from a superficial level. However, if we really want to make the difference, and that's, I think, the realization of the United Nations, just having a session on sexual exploitation and abuse in which we say, this you cannot do it, this you cannot do it. I mean, people will be, and that's my experience as well when we train, and people will say, of course, mom, I mean, I do, I do know that I cannot do it. Is this going, the fact that I'm telling them you cannot do it, is this going to prevent them from doing? No. And that we see like on a regular basis, unfortunately. Um, what is important to, to understand is where this behavior is rooted. And as William was saying, like this is a deep process that requires people really to put themselves somehow in question, to put like their the things that they have, they believe on, or they have been socialized accordingly, to put them in question and decide for themselves, is this something that I can accept or not? And really having this process of questioning is a process that takes time and also is a process that requires a lot of sensitivities because you are going to open up Pandora boxes. And the last thing you want to do is really like being perceived as someone that wants to brainwash them according to certain standards or whatsoever, which is always the risk when you get into these dynamics. So it's really like trying to understand where this behavior is rooted, but this is with all sorts of behavior. To change the behavior, you need to understand from where the behavior starts and then going and working with that behavior. There are behaviors that are easier to work with, and there are behaviors that are less easier to work with because the impact on how I have been socialized, culture, religion, and many, many different things that can be very, very sensitive. But Yaro said something that I'm very like, I'm 150% supportive with the fact, the important role that families play in deployment. And I'm really, really convinced of that having experienced it myself, but also like 
having worked with so many peacekeepers, um, families, at the same way that we train the troops prior to deployment, there is a space, not probably to train the families, but to raise the awareness of the families. How can they support the people that are deployed? How they can really become part of the mission, as Yara was saying, which can make such a difference. Because if I know that even if they are not with me, but they are, and today, I mean, with technology, uh, I mean, we are a phone call away from our loved one. Of course, it's not the physical presence. I do agree with that. But still, really, how can we sensitize them on the challenges that the people that are deployed will face? How can they support them, even if it's only from distance? Um, how can they help recognizing if there are signs of distress, if there are signs of um, some traumatic events that are impacting on the mental health? And I mean, this also the United Nations is getting more and more aware of the importance. I mean, all the peacekeeping a good part of the peacekeeping ministerial this year is going to talk about the importance of mental health for peacekeepers and how like who can support them in this process and the discussion around families is fun. And it would be really interesting from my perspective also like in these more sensitive, sensitive topics, really how to involve the families as well. Because at the end of the day, if we go back to the sexual exploitation and abuse, is the consequences of those acts are not only for the individual themselves, but something we insist on a lot. You're wearing the uniform, you represent the country, but at the same time, you're part of a community, you're part of a family, and everyone will be impacted by that. And so really like doing on the one hand this deep work on understanding where the behavior comes from, I really like uh, going much more on a personal dimension, but also helping them understanding is not only about that. Are you ready to lose everything for what you're about to do? Ask yourself the question before doing it. And then if the answer is yes, okay. I mean, I'm not saying go ahead, absolutely. But I mean, it's a different thing. But are you really ready to lose everything? Do you really realize at what point you will lose everything? And so really like, but having, again, this discussion requires, again, the involvement probably also of the families and also really safe spaces where people feel comfortable discussing these topics, which are extremely uncomfortable topics and not only for peacekeeper, for anyone. Absolutely. Thank you, Claudia. Out of interest of time, I'm just going to turn back to Yara before we go to, to some questions from the from the audience here. But Yara, I really want to hear from you um, about your 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 experience. We've been talking about how it's 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 a, a tough experience going off and deploying as a peacekeeper. And you mentioned how, you know, it is it is we've talked about how it's different from the national uh, service that, that many peacekeepers are coming from. But in your service as a, in the gendarmerie in Burkina Faso and then going out off to be a peacekeeper and now as a trainer that 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 sort of your own reflections from that experience have they informed your training and 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 so could you tell us about what you how you felt i mean you've said the conditions of service but um you know how is what were the things you you never imagined when going from being in the gendarmerie to becoming a peacekeeper and how do you bring that into your training and to try to help uh future peacekeepers in their in their transition 
I think you're muted. You're you're on mute. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, um, I mean, um, let, let me first uh, talk about peacekeeping uh, meetings, too, because it's very, it's a very particular and um, particular word or, or, or setting. And sometimes you just have to know, you know what I'm talking about. You just have to leave it and know it. Uh, I have one of my friends saying that, um, a peacekeeping meeting is a word within the word. Yeah. So it's a small word within the word. <laughs> it's an environment when you bring people, I mean, you bring people from from different backgrounds. You bring military, police, and civilians from different countries, different cultures, different beliefs, different backgrounds. And in a very particular environment, the peacekeeping environment is a very particular environment. You know, it's a conflict environment, it's a threat environment. And you bring those people to help people that are also from different backgrounds, different stories. Because the, 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 the war in Turkey, the vulnerable peoples, all of them have different beliefs, background, history. So you bring these people to work together for a very short time to give results. So it's a very particular, <laughs> particular setting, it's a particular story. And what what really helped me coming back to your questions and from from national gendarme to to to, to peacekeepers, that that was easy because I was training peacekeepers before I got deployed. Yeah. So when I get on the on the ground and I start uh, learning, I mean, the, learning about the environment, I mean, the, the working environment, and then I was confident that to work in such environment, you need rules, you need some values, I mean, you need some regulation when dealing with all this. So basically, you have you have to base on some values like integrity. Uh, 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 like uh, respect for diversity and gender and, and professionalism as UN uh, uh, UN stated. Integrity, you have to be, you have to be, you have to live it, you have to act accordingly. So professionalism, you have to live it, you have to act it, and you have to do it. And mostly about diversity and respect for diversity. Respect for gender and diversity because you are in that world, in this world, actually, if you are in the peacekeeping mission. So, those values really, and you have to, um, they, are, they, are, they are requirements, they are, they are marked. I mean, from my country to the peacekeeping mission, for uh, now for, for, for training as a trainer in the, in the uh, with USIT. So, um, We lost your audio again. It doesn't look like you're muted, but we can't hear you. I'll give you a second. Um, we'll come back to you to finish up if if you, if you can't uh, pick it up. But we're, we're we're running out of time, and I want to get to some of the questions here from the audience. So we lost Yaro, unfortunately. Maybe we'll get him back in just a second. 
Um, so I'm just turning to some of our, our questions here. Um, the first one. Um, sorry, I'm picking between two. Um, <laughs> okay, the, fir the first question is about the employment of peacekeeping intelligence as an essential element for peacekeepers uh, to, to remain safe. Uh, the question is, how are peacekeepers and force commanders trained prior to deployment in gathering and utilizing intelligence? And I think we, we know that some of these missions have these JMACs and these joint um, uh, centers for, for gathering all of the different intelligence. It, it's not intelligence as my understanding is uh, in the way we think of national intelligence services, but it is its own form of gathering data, compiling it and, and distributing it to the, to the mission. But that's my, I, I shouldn't have answered the question. Uh, maybe I'll turn to, to, to Claudia or Yara. I mean, Yara might not have heard it first to Claudia uh, because you heard the question. And then Yara, if you have anything to add, the question is how peacekeepers receive and deploy the, the intelligence uh, that they need for their work. Yeah. So since last year, actually, there is now a full training packages on on peacekeeping intelligence. So that's something that the United Nations recognizes as an essential tool. As you said, it's not intelligence in the sense that we we conceive it, for example, at the national level, national defense forces and so on. But it's still very much around the collection of information and the analysis of the information for operational purposes. So uh, not only personnel that has this specific role within the, the unit is being trained, but also the commanding officers are being trained because uh, those that have the specific role most of the time are very much in the collection analysis part, but then the commanders needs to know how to use those informations to plan, command, and uh, guide the executions of operations. So it's all formalized at the level of the military and it's being formalized for the police as well. So it's uh, definitely like an acknowledgement that this is relevant and is linked then to all the support structures that you have within the mission as well. Thank you. Yaro, do you have anything to add in your experience uh, for the need for intelligence, the training that you may have received or any training that you're doing on intelligence for peacekeepers? Um, uh, not really, but uh, within the battalion, I think they do have, um, they, do, they, do, they do deploy uh, human intelligence, not um, like... Um, they do have human intelligence personnel within the, the battalions. Uh, 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 I mean, uh, going with uh, with with patrol team in the fields. So we, I mean, they all they always join the patrol team because, you know, Andrew, what I'm talking about UN mission is all about inter interaction. It's about interaction, communication, and talking. So usually we have those in intelligent people within the battalion and joining. And patrol team collecting informations or collecting intelligence uh, from previous because usually you have the same country deploy within the same area for many times so they they do share intelligence and information within the battalion to help the work and uh, this this is what I know and this is how we 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 this is how we we train them when we we, tra we train the battalion in the country. All right, thanks. 
Thank you so much. And I think I, I think we only have time for one more question. I want you all to to try to re respond to and and um, uh, uh, go around. I'm going to start with William because the 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 audience question I think is something that might be on everyone's mind who would tune into such a conversation. I mean, we know about some of the problems we're seeing in in, in missions, the specifically the peacekeeping mission in Mali, or the, the issues with with the. Um, and even in the Central African Republic, with with Wagner there, and and the 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 different uh, narratives around the mission, uh, and the 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 calls for the mission to leave, both from the government, but I also think amongst the population, we've seen protests. So the question is, having seen the the high profile instances of civilian protests against missions, they mentioned in Mali and also Monusco in the DRC. Um, and the public hostility that we've seen, and it's definitely uh, the case in the DRC, as we know. What what more can be done? We've talked about it over the course of this conversation, but how can UN missions train peacekeepers to be uh, more responsive and more equipped to deal with the the demands of the civilians to, for for accountability? Yes, we've talked about that, but also effectiveness. Um, what what can be done, especially in the face of these these more um, uh, transactional alternatives <laughs> that are out there um, that, that are often appealing to governments. Uh, I once spoke to an interlocutor who, who country to remain nameless, but they liked Wagner because Wagner fights and Wagner kills the bad guy. But we also know what comes along with the package. That's the government perspective. That's not what this question is about, but there is that competition there. That is that threat to the peacekeeper missions. So I think William will start with you. What, what can be done in the face of these these high-profile uh, issues, and, and what can training can be done to prepare peacekeepers to 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 respond to these these issues? And I'm going to give this question to everyone. Thank you, thank you Andrew. Um, I would say that the the at the core, of this question is about how peacekeepers and communities perceive each other and how they operate together with each other. Uh, the primary issue that we see uh, is based on um, what are the expectations from the peacekeeping mission and how they're communicated to civilians and to people in general in the country. Um, if the expectation is for the peacekeeping mission to uh, resolve problems that are outside of its or that are beyond its capacity, that creates an issue with trust. So first of all, managing expectations is essential and communication that about that targeted communication about that is essential. Uh, we've seen peacekeepers return and say that the community expected us to deal with everything and to be the ones who respond to every um, you know, every issue, medical, supplies, you know, uh, food, uh, access to transportation, uh, dealing with infrastructure, uh, you know, fighting the people that they perceive as a threat and the cause of violence, um, resolving issues around, you know, political, you know, uh, you know, so the expectations are diverse and managing those expectations, I think, from the UN peacekeeping force itself at its leadership level, but also equipping every single individual on that on that peacekeeping mission. I really think it's a, every single person, including people who do non-troop, non-military work including people who don't who do non-police work. Everybody needs to know exactly what the talking points are around the missions goals and what it can reasonably achieve in that moment. Uh, second of all, 
really beefing up the efforts like the ones that USIP and Claudia's team and Unitar do, things that really revolve around tools for conflict analysis, tools for uh, managing that conflict through mediation and collaborative problem solving. The biggest issue is that if you have a community that feels like the peacekeepers just, you know, close the gate if it gets too, you know, rough or or pull out the guns, which thankfully peacekeeping missions are not always uh, putting violence first, but that is something that is necessary, uh, giving them those tools to equipping them with how to negotiate, how to mediate, how to resolve an issue without resorting to violence. And that is, we're trying to do it, but what I'm trying to say is more because to be perfectly honest the full battalion is not receiving this training yet and expanding our pool of trainers through our current tot process and i'm sure that unitar is also involved in a lot of tot processes this is going to help us reach more and more of uh, people on that peacekeeping mission to be able to communicate the talking points to be able to communicate reasonably to be able to manage expectations and to be able to say when they can and what they can and can't do uh in a way that doesn't aggravate the issue uh and finally last point is just around you know so much right now uh, that the un is going to be talking about more in depth i'm sure uh is misinformation and how to combat that uh through the technologies that we have and i think the last resort is obviously violence and these are very concrete ways that we can work on this Thank you so much, William and, and Claudia. What are your What are your thoughts? Yeah. You You are mute. Sorry, my thoughts are very much along the way of what um, William was saying. I mean, when I, when you ask the question, the first answer for me is management of expectations, and that's I mean I would take it probably not only at the individual level, but that's a systemic problem at the UN level. So even the UN, absolutely, like when the people are deployed, absolutely, they have a due they do have a responsibility to manage the expectations of the communities. But at the same time, we need to align the discourses as well. You cannot have at the strategic level a certain discourse that then is not uh, much with what happening on the field. So I think that managing expectations at all levels from a strategic perspective, but also then when you go down to the communities essential, uh, the issue of misinformation is another big thing. And you have to understand also that you are intervening in, in context where you have different power dynamics, different interests, and the reason for misinformation may be multiple. And so also like being aware of that and understanding that part. But the other big thing for me, like really to avoid these issues is accountability. We need to strengthen our accountability mechanism as United Nations. It's, it's not only like if something doesn't go in the right direction, I think that we need to be, um, we need to really pause for a second and try to understand, okay, why this is, is gone so wrong? And what is that we're going to do to correct this? And showing to the communities that there is an accountability system. If something goes wrong, it's not just to say, oh, sorry, something went wrong. I mean, we will continue. But showing that there is actually, there are consequences, the people are held accountable. That will be really, really important to avoid the situations that we have seen. You have mentioned Mali. I'm very, very familiar with the context in Mali. And one of the big issues there that has fostered this um, uh, confrontation of the civilian communities vis-a-vis -vis the mission is around accountability. There are 
things that happen, incidents that happen, and people that lose their lives for whatever reason, at least stop for a moment, try to understand why this has happened. And if there was a mistake, acknowledge there was a mistake. We are humans, we can do mistakes, but acknowledge it, have people accountable for it. And that's for sure helps in the trusting process. If I know that I can do wrong and nothing will happen, I mean, why then someone should just go along the way that doesn't make any sense. We would not do it as individuals. I'm not, I wonder why we should expect communities where we intervene, where we are like hosted, but where we are hosted by should accept it. So for me, this management expectation, misinformation, but also accountability are really important elements. And Yara, I'm going to close with you, but the same same issue of of of, of responding to the the protests and dealing with these protests. But there's a, there's a this is a long question, and they've asked for any examples on the African context continent specifically of when there's been successful training to prepare to respond to civilian needs. And I and I just want to ask your thoughts. Uh, potentially uh, on on these the more involvement of of regional bodies in peacekeeping we've seen that in mozambique today it's not a un mission it's a it's a sadic mission um and you've spoken to to the the experiences of peacekeepers going back to their countries and being able to train so actually african led regionally focused uh peacekeeping missions uh and the training of those 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 peacekeepers can you comment on maybe that dimension and and see if and if that would have any uh, means of, of of sort of responding to these these protests and these demands uh, and your thoughts on that, Yara? Well, thank you very much, Andrew. And um, uh, going back uh, to what Claudia had said is um, uh, for the first uh, for the first point, which is all about expectation and political trends in the mission area which has to be dealt at the international level, at the high level, the strategic level. But for the, for the, for the peacekeeper, as peacekeeper on the fields, you have to stick on the mandate and be useful for the people you are serving on the ground. So we have to train peacekeepers to stick on the mission mandate and deliver what they have to deliver on the ground. And uh, vulnerable people, the population has to find, they have to see that they are useful for them then they can influence what is happening in the country. So that's how we have to, we have to actually to train the peacekeepers to be very careful about the political trend within the mission environment. Yeah, you are a peacekeeper on the fields, you have to be very careful what, what is happening in the field as, uh, in the, uh, as, as far as uh, the, politi the politics issue is concerned and, 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 and so on. So coming back to your question about uh, shifting from UN to African um, peacekeeping dimensions, yes, I think it's what is happening. What's happened first in 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 um, in, um, in, uh, in, in in Darfur? The UN start mixing hybrid missions, and then Somalia hybrid missions. And yes, it's good trend if we have like West African countries, like here in West Africa, if UN can push our local organization to be very supportive to the peacekeeping missions operating within our within the region. That will be very good. But that will bring um, a positive positive asset because we have a lot of uh, a lot of um, a lot of peacekeepers, a lot of experience. 
So that will, that will be very good. Because one of the challenges of the UN is you bring in people from all over. UN doesn't have any, any forces. So if you have to mobilize maybe people at the regional level, that would be very easy. And then follow the, the local, I mean, the regional or the organization to, to implement that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Joe. Yeah, that that was that was my observation. I was both and I was in Nairobi uh, last week and yeah. and and speaking about uh, some with EGAD uh, even here in Washington earlier this week. This seems to be uh, 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 the involvement of the regional economic communities in in peace and security, peacekeeping specifically, seems to be a trend. And and in Mozambique, when I spoke to members of the Southern African Development Community Mission in Mozambique and the civilians that were were we're working with them and 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 sort of uh, receiving aid from them in Cabo Delgado. It, it seemed to be a positive a positive trend for now. So that that dimension seems to be something positive. It's a little bit off the training topic. I'm sorry, but of course there's training that has to go with that. Um, thank you so much. Oh, William has one last point, and then just, we have to close. Yeah, right. just a very quick one. As we talk about evolution, I just wanted to do a little nod you know, make a little nod to the future. And um, with the regional uh, entities and, uh, you know, uh, the realities that we're seeing on the African continent is that uh, more and more regional groupings will have to develop to respond, not necessarily to human threats, but to environmental threats. And so I would say that one of the big training uh, elements that are going to be more and more in need as we go forward are how do peacekeeping missions uh, re, re, you know, deploy and respond to conflicts that result from environmental crises and challenges. And that's where the regional is going to be essential, because at that moment in the near future, um, yeah. there will be a response that is required that is local and national and regional as people will be displaced and yeah. moving yeah. around because of these issues. So that's just yeah. a nod to the future. But I'm hoping that, Andrew, maybe you can convene us again in the future to talk about future needs of peacekeeping on the on the continent and abroad as well and all over the world where peacekeeping missions exist thank you i would be honored to do that i would be honored to do that i think it is the future and it is now unfortunately we're facing these environmental disasters yara did you have some last words yara to, to close us out anything anything you have to say no i'm good i'm good okay claudia, <laughs> okay. claudia any final words no, I think that um, the, the beauty of these conversations is that it actually opens up so many opportunity for follow-up conversations. And I think that looking into the future, it's definitely what is needed. And I mean, as you said, probably the future is now already. So how can we really be more proactive along that way? But I think that's a subject for another time. <laughs> Yes, unfortunately, we've run out of time and we didn't get to all the questions. I apologize to our, I'm sure, massive audience here. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. And we'll talk to you later on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.